unashamed, undaunted, unstoppable. Am I talking to somebody that's unstoppable in this house today? Numbers 19 is where we have been in this series. We're in a series on the function and power of spiritual coverings. Many people don't even know what those are, but when you're covered by a spiritual covering, you receive certain benefits that you do not have if you're not under a covering. And in today's market-based economy, where people are of a consumer orientation about just about everything, you know, they not only shop for their kind of car, shop for the kind of designer they want to wear, uh, you know, the whole thing. I mean, we do the same with restaurants. There's such a multitude of, of opportunities. Well, Houston has a lot of churches. Last I heard, we had 3,000, over 3,400 churches in just this one city alone. And people can decide, well, church is church, and I'm going over here because I took a job that is making 15 cents more an hour, so I'm relocating. And, you know, all kind of things can factor in. Here's what I strongly believe. You are supposed to be where God placed you. I'm supposed to be where God placed me. Amen. If you don't belong here, I love you, but I don't want you to be here. I want you to be where God wants you to be. And that's because until you connect with the place God has assigned you, you don't have a spiritual covering. And you miss out on all the benefits of that. And so uh, there could be any number of reasons that you might uh, feel drawn or need to do a certain thing. But my advice is always to pray. And in all of these years, I've never asked, in 28 years of pastoring, never sought for anyone to come here that was elsewhere. Never would do that. You know why? Because I can uproot somebody and I can remove them from their spiritual covering. And then what happens after that? The Bible said in Hebrews 13, I have to give an account. I have to give an account to God for what I did. And what may end up happening, the, the possibilities that could happen in that person's life, their family, their, it, so many things. God is going to come ask me, why did you do that? Because I had them covered and you removed them from their covering. So in Numbers 19, 14 through 15, this is the law when a man dies in a tent, all who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days and every vessel, open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Death is working around us. This is the thesis. And that there's destruction all around us. The enemy is at work. Bad attitudes, marriages failing, economy crashing, tanking, people losing jobs, so many things. And if a vessel is not covered, it is easy for contamination to get within that vessel. You may have somebody that, that is just, their life is going haywire. And they become bitter and they're spewing vomit and hatred every turn of uh, the, the way. And if you aren't careful, that can even get in you if you're not covered, if you have a covering. See, this covering consists of different things. And I've talked already in this series about that there are eight types of coverings. I've talked to you about blood coverings, prayer coverings, worship coverings, grace coverings. And last week and today, I'm talking about coverings of the anointing or coverings of oil. And in Isaiah 10 and 20, I read last week and also verse 27, it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped to the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. Now, this is an extremely important 
study, I believe, because these yokes can occur more commonly in our mind than they do anywhere else, where we get yoked up with wrong thinking. That happens before you get saved, but it can happen after you get saved. After you get saved, here's what doesn't happen. Your thoughts are not emptied out and you start all over again with a clean slate. That's not the way it works. Though you're saved and on your way to heaven, you carry into your new born-again life all of the thinking that you have been programmed to believe prior to you coming into the kingdom of God. Then becomes uh, a, 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 then it becomes a challenge on the part of the Holy Spirit to unseat all of this wrong thinking in your life and reprogram you with the principles of life because the principles of the past life engender death. They lead to destruction. And that's the ultimate end. That is, that is where thinking from the past life leads us. The thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. It leads to declension, to loss. In the kingdom of God, the principles that are founded upon the word of God lead to gain, to benefit, to elevation. So God reprograms you. The way you know that God is challenging your thinking is when his word confronts you and you find that you don't believe some of the things that the Bible says or that you might be hearing preached. And so it's something within you kind of rises up against that. And I don't believe that. I don't think that's necessary. And yet you look and it's there in the Bible. It's a dead giveaway that God is confronting your thinking or hearing what I'm saying. And at that point, you have an alternative. You can either lay aside previous thought and open and be submitted to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, reprogram me on the basis of your eternal word. As David did, I esteem thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Or you can persist and say, that's just not what I believe. And to be honest with you, the current church situation, let me give you, a, 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 a as it were, a, um, a, a State of the Union address or analysis of where the church is at in much of the world, including America, is that much of the world has now looked at the Word of God. Much of the church world says this is no longer necessary. They're confronted by the teaching of the Word of God. You know what they change? They change what the Bible says, not what they believe. And they remind me of the king in the book of Jeremiah, was it Jehoiakim, who whenever he got the scroll of Jeremiah, he would read a page that he didn't like, cut it out with his penknife, and throw it into the fire. And that's what a lot of them do. And so you find all kind of stuff that is being accepted by the church that shouldn't be accepted. And part of the motivation for that is not only because they don't want to go through the process of being confronted by the Word of God, there are all kinds of social factors out there as well. And if you've ever studied sociology, then you know about norms and taboos. You know about the pressure a social group that you have been socialized into can put upon you to conform to their views. And, um, and a lot of that's going on out there in the world right now. And you find it. I mean, look at this political thing right now. That, that I've never seen so much pressure put on people to vote one way or another. The, as I've said before, the news media no longer reports the news. You have news on either side, and one reports what they want you to hear and believe, and the other over here tells you the exact opposite, what they want you to believe and hear. And you throw your hands up, and you don't hardly know what to believe these days. And it's terrible. And there's fake news on both sides. That's just the way it is. 
And if you drink the Kool-Aid, I feel sorry for you. Amen. And what God's people are doing is not experiencing. They are not enjoying the fulfillment of the life they were meant to live. And serving God, life should always get better. It gets sweeter as the days go by. Anybody remember that old song? Amen. There was a little girl was visiting with her 85-year-old granddad and playing with her mom's little makeup mirror as she sat on her granddad's lap. And as she was sitting in his lap, she noticed all his wrinkles, and she said, Grandpa, did God make you? And he said, yes, he did, honey. He made me many years ago. And she asked, Grandpa, did God make me too? And the granddad said, yes, he did, but he made you just a few years ago. She was only like four years old. And she thought for a minute and looked at all of his wrinkles again, reached up and touched him, looked at his gray hair, looked at herself in the little mirror, and she said, Grandpa, God's getting a lot better at it, isn't he? Amen. (laughs) Amen. That's how life should be with God. It should be a lot better. But for many Christians, that's not the truth. Father, speak to us today. Open your word, guide us, and let our steps be directed in Jesus' name by you. So when you become a committed member of the, of the church that God has placed you in, whether here or anywhere, it is no small thing. That's when that church becomes your covering. Last week, we spoke about what the anointing man and its characteristics as understood by examining the combination of the unique components that were used to produce the anointing oil that was a suspension, if you remember, I talked about that rather than a solution. In talking about these things that have to do with the anointing, we gain insight, and as we study these components, we gain insight into the value of having a covering of oil or an anointed covering. And so uh, let's talk about things that were actually anointed in the tabernacle, because I left you last week talking about the anointing oil and the components that went into that and how that tabernacle, the house of God, was first anointed. Exodus 30, 26 and 33, use this sacred oil to anoint the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and all its accessories, the incense altar, altar burnt offering, all its utensils, the wash basin with its stand, consecrate them to make them absolutely holy. After this, whatever touches them will also become holy. Remember that. Anoint Aaron and his sons also, consecrating them to serve me as priest and say to the people of Israel, this is the holy anointing oil and it is reserved for me from, for, from generation to generation. It must never be used to anoint anyone else. You must never make a blend like it for yourselves. It is holy and you must treat it as holy and anyone who makes a blend like it or anoint someone other than a priest will be cut off from the community. Though some people feel the Old Testament is not very important to us today, I believe that it contains profoundly important insights into the benefits of serving God and how the kingdom of God functions. Insight into the principles of the kingdom of God are revealed in the Old Testament upon close examination. In fact, there's a strong movement today that that believes that if you become a Christian, you don't need to even read much in the Old Testament. What can they say? Antiquated, archaic laws that had to do with a culture that doesn't even exist anymore. What does that have to do with an application 
in my life as a Christian in today's world in 2017. It actually has a great deal to do with it. You see, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is actually concealed. In the New Testament, you will find that the Old Testament is actually revealed. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul, speaking of Israel in the wilderness and all they endured and went through, and including these things about the tabernacle and the anointing, said all these things happened to them as examples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Though we live after those events, Paul said, they were for our benefit. That God was actually speaking to us through what was being done. Who was he speaking to? Those who live at the end of the age. In Hebrews 10 and 1, we read that the law of the Old Testament was actually a shadow of good things that were to come in the New Testament. Shadows are cast by an object. They are not the object. A shadow has no substance. But you can look at a shadow and you can get some idea as to the dimensions or the size or the shape, oftentimes, of the object that casts the shadow. If you're sitting in a chair and a shadow is cast across you, you know someone is approaching. You might not know, not, might not know who it is, but you realize someone is approaching and you turn to see who it might be. In similar form, these laws in the Old Testament were actually the shadows cast by God's New Testament relationship with his church. The principles of the kingdom that would be revealed in the New Testament are seen in the archaic forms in which they are employed to the nation of Israel and given in the form of instructions as how they were to be lived. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says... All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is, say it with me, profitable. Say it, profitable. What scripture is profitable? All. Old Testament included. Profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This implies that if all scripture produces the end product of a child of God, that is thoroughly equipped for every good work and completed by all scripture. To leave some scripture out leaves the person that is the child of God at a state of incompleteness in the construction of their relationship with God. Amen. You need all scripture. We see revealed in this passage that I've read to you from Exodus regarding the anointing, actually one of the very earliest mentions, to give you an example of uh, New Testament principles, one of the earliest mentions in the scripture of the kingdom principle of impartation. Moses is instructed, Exodus 30, 29, consecrate these items, anoint every item in the temple and the tabernacle and make them absolutely holy. After this, he says, God does to Moses, whatever touches them will also become holy. That's the principle of impartation. The anointing resulted in an impartation that occurred to everything that touched what had been anointed. Once the items in Exodus 30 in the tabernacle were anointed from that time forward, God said, if you touch them, you were made holy. These items would cause an impartation, literally a transfer of the holiness of God carried by them to whatever touched them. 
And this was important because what breaks the yoke of the enemy is the holiness of God. That's what breaks it and shatters it into a thousand pieces. And so when the yoke of the enemy, yokes in your thinking, come in contact with the items that are anointed by God, the yokes are broken. The anointing breaks the bondage. And here's what's amazing. Notice the things that were anointed did not lose their anointing in the process of transference of anointing. They didn't. If something touched them that was impure or something touched them that needed to be set free, it did not cause them to lose their anointing. The power of the anointing was so great that it broke the yoke upon whatever was bound, regardless of what it was. If it was from the dark side, it made no difference. It broke that yoke, and the anointing not only remained on the item that had been dedicated and consecrated and anointed to God, it now was shared by whatever touched it. Amen. The way this operates, as I've shared with you before, is through the principle that it places a demand upon the anointing. It's like the lights. When you flip on the switch, they place a demand upon the electricity that comes in through these these, uh, transformers that are out on this pole beside the church and through the meter into this church. When Sam turns on the PA system, it places a demand upon the electrical power that comes into this building and things work that if you turn that switch off do not work. And so the key then is to touch what is holy, isn't it? The key is if you can touch what is holy, by doing so, you place a demand upon the anointing it carries. And there were these items in the tabernacle God said to anoint. And so you have this altar. And if you can have a breakthrough and touch the altar in prayer, I promise you, you will have an importation. Amen. And the yoke will be broken. I've watched people come to the house of God. All kind of yokes in their life, yoked up to drug addiction, immorality, uh, depression, suicidal thoughts, you name it. And marriages that were on the rocks. And whenever you touch that altar, you get a hold of God in prayer. You know what happens? There's an impartation that occurs. Amen. Jesus talked about this, and he said that the house of God, Matthew 23, 16 through 19, sanctifies what is in it, and that the altar sanctifies what you place on it, not the other way around. There were people that were saying, I'm going to give this gift, and this is going to really, it's going to benefit the kingdom of God. Well, yes, it does at one level, but you know who gets benefited more than the kingdom? because it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. When you place your gift on the altar, it's not your gift that makes the altar holy. It's the altar that makes the gift holy. And therefore, you walk out in a different way than you came in. This is the whole principle that is behind tithing, for example. And and we see this principle again in Mark 5, 29. It's the principle of the lady with the issue of blood came to understand. She realized that Jesus was anointed. And somebody says, well, how did she know what to do? 
Isaiah 61 and verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord, Jesus said, is upon me because he has anointed me. This woman knew the Old Testament law and knew the principle of impartation, that if I can touch what is anointed, I will have a transference of that holiness into my life. It will break the yoke. In this case, I'm yoked up to bondage. I've had an issue of blood 12 years. She saw he is anointed. If I touch him, there's going to be a transfer. Amen. This is also why Jesus, in contradiction to the law itself, reached out and touched the leper in Matthew 8 and 3. And the moment he did, the leper was healed. Why? Because when the leper came in contact with the principle of transference, he got something and Jesus never lost his holiness in the process. It's also why he touched the two blind men in Matthew 9 and 29 who received their sight. He could have just spoken the word. He did that on other occasions with other people, but he touched them. Why? Because if you are hungry enough to know what's really going on, you're going to look at that and say, why did he touch them and something happened? And yet in other places, he didn't. And then, aha, the light bulb goes off. You have an, a, a eureka moment and you realize it's the principle of impartation at work. They touched what was anointed, the yoke was broken, and the anointed walked off without losing any of his anointing. Now, stay with me for just a moment. If you can in faith somehow touch what is anointed, God will cause a breakthrough to happen in your life. That's why we talk about breakthroughs in altars. This is why you need an anointed covering where there's an anointed altar. It's also why if you're struggling with issues of morality or immorality in your life, you need to touch an anointed brazen laver because the laver represents sanctification. And you can't get free from this thing that's got a hold of you. But if you can touch an anointed laver, you know what's going to happen? Pornography has got to let go. I'm preaching right now. Excuse me, I felt the preacher just walk into the room. Amen. Hallelujah. Let me move on. So Moses not only anointed the tabernacle, he was instructed to anoint everything in it. Each item represents what you have access to when you are under the covering of a, an anointed covering or the covering of oil. They are part of the reason that coverings of oil are so important. When you look at the diagram of the temple, there were three basic components to the temple in terms of its geographical layout. There was the courtyard, and then there was the tent within the courtyard. In the, the, the courtyard, you will see the brazen laver and uh, the altar in front of it. You'll see uh, eight rectangles, four on each side. Those are actually slaughter tables. And then you see the tent at the back of the compound. The tent was divided into two parts. The larger part was the holy place. The smaller part was the holiest of holies. And each of these places, each of these three three dimensions of the tabernacle had 
items in them that Moses was instructed to anoint. First was the brazen altar, then the brazen laver, and then the table of showbread, and then the golden candlestick, and then the altar of incense, and then behind the veil, the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. And he had to begin, though, in the anointing. Watch it now. Read the book of Exodus, chapter 30. He was instructed to start inside the holiest of holies and work his way out. Not from the outside in like a man would do it, because you can't approach God by yourself. You can't find your way to him. God had to come out looking for us. That's why Christ came, to wit God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Amen. I don't care how much you try, man can't make himself pure. And we cannot ascend, but God can descend. Amen. And that is why Jesus came, ladies and gentlemen. He left the holiest of holies to come to this world, the outer court where all of us live and walk among us. And Moses was instructed, start on the inside because God is making his way out, not man making his way in. And so he anointed the ark and he anointed the the. the, the uh, uh, the uh, mercy seat. Then he walked out, anointed the altar of incense, and then the golden candlestick and the table of showbread, and then walked over and anointed the brazen laver, and then anointed the brazen altar. But we're going to do it the opposite way because we're not God. So let us walk and through this as we make our approach to God. The first was God's approach to us. Now the reverse of that is how we approach him. First you come to the brazen altar. This is where the parts of the sacrifice were offered. This is where the animal was killed. And the first item you came to was this brazen altar. You need an anointed altar in your life. Amen. You don't get past this and do an end run around it. You don't have an altar in your life. Hello, am I talking to anybody? It all begins in relationship and something's got to die. Amen. Something's got to die. When you come to God, you got to lay some attitudes down. You got to lay some flesh down. You got to lay your will down. Hello, somebody. You've got to submit to Him. And right there is where most folk stumble. You know why? They believe if they totally sell out to God that it's going to cost them their joy, their happiness. They're going to end up being miserable. You've seen Christians that are miserable, right? They walk around with their head tucked over to one side. They think they look real pious and holy. I think they look constipated. Amen. And, you know, I'm suffering for Jesus, that kind of a thing. And they make you afraid to totally sell out to God because you believe if you sell out to God, he's going to make you quit your job, move to Borneo and be a missionary and never let you get married as long as you live. And you don't want to be celibate the rest of your life. And, and so that's not the way God rolls, ladies and gentlemen. That's not how God rides. Amen. I want you to know that God has a plan for your life that will make your life wonderful and fill you with joy. Amen. Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. God has incredible plans for you. 
And so when you die at the altar to self-will, the next thing you come to is the brazen laver. And this brazen laver represents sanctification. It's where the priest washed his hands that were bloody and covered with the gore of the sacrifice. It's where he washed the parts of the animal that were sacrificed. You need an altar in your life, but you need a brazen laver too. And there are also analogies that can be drawn from this as to how one goes about getting saved. The altar could represent repentance, and the brazen laver could represent baptism. And I I know that some folk don't think baptism is all that important, but I beg to differ with you. If it was important enough for Jesus to be baptized, I think it's important that I be baptized too. Amen. Am I talking to anybody right now? We probably have all kind of folk that have never understood baptism. I came from a background when my mother was was raising me. Uh, I was a part of the, she was raising me in the Catholic church. They baptized infants, right? Almost as soon as they were born, old enough to take down to the the church, they got baptized. But look, I'm not going to fight with anybody on that. All I want to say is I didn't know what in the world I was doing when I was an infant. And when I, I got old enough to know, I needed to make my mind up for myself. And, and I, need, I had done some things that were not good. And, and the good thing about baptism, it's good from, from that day forward, hallelujah, to the Lamb. And it covers not only the past, it covers the future too. Oh, hear what I'm talking about. If you've never been baptized, we baptize here constantly. In fact, I'm thinking of taking one of these Holy Spirit encounters real soon and doing nothing but teaching on baptism and baptizing a bunch of folk. We've got Lloyd Bustard coming the 23rd of this month. We're going to have another move of God. And amen. You don't want to miss that because what we're doing is we're moving toward the holiest of holies, an encounter with God. And baptism is important. I I got some stuff I picked up along the way in life. I need to have washed off. You know what I'm talking about? I did some stuff I'm not proud of. I want to get clean and baptism helps me with that. And if you look at that water, you will find it's got blood in it. It's red, tinged with blood. What happened when Jesus was pierced? Blood and water came from his side. You see, water's not going to do you any good unless it's got some blood in it. Amen. And Oh, I'm preaching right now. Yes, I am. You may not know it, but I am. Next thing you came to was the table of showbread with the 12 loaves of bread on it. 12 was the number of completion in Scripture in terms of divine government. And um, when you eat from the Word of God, and whenever you have God's government in your life, notice there are 12 loaves. I don't care how hungry you are. That fills you up. Amen. A life with God is full and satisfying. You don't need to worry about going to bed hungry at night when you got God's word in your heart. Do you hear what I'm talking about? Hallelujah to the lamb. David said, I was young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. But I'll tell you a better kind of bread than the kind you're going to get at Luby's or Papacito's today. You know what it is? It's the bread of life. It satisfies in a way that you never hunger for the things of this world again. Amen. And you need an anointing on the table of showbread. You need this book to come alive because you can read this book and not make any sense out of it. And that's why some people don't find any value in the Old Testament. But if God ever 
ever anoints the table of showbread. And that will you touch that word and oh, something begins to go through you because I tell you what I found out. If I'm in my worst place ever, if I can just get a word. If I can just get a word, if I can touch the table of showbread, if God will allow me to find a word, you may get laid off from your job, but if you pick up Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Did you hear that? If you get a hold of the word, God, God will cause there to be a transference. There will be impartation. You will receive. Amen. The holiness imparted into that object and you will walk out and you will be changed. But the word of God will still have just as much anointing as it did before you touched it. Amen. And then you come to the golden candlestick, which represents uh, the illumination because the golden candlestick casts light upon the bread. Amen. Because while I love the word, I want it to be rightly divided. I don't want somebody offering me a bunch of nonsense and claiming that's what the Bible teaches. No, uh-uh. you have to know how to rightly divide the word of the Lord. That's what Paul told Timothy. And look, whenever you get a revelation, mm-mm-mm. it's more than just picking up Psalms 23. That's why you need to read the word every day of your life. Because some days you're going to read it and nothing's going to leap out at you. But other days, you're going to be walking through something, and you're going to open the Bible, and my God, you're going to say, whoa, is that in there? I told you before, when I first got saved, I used to read the Bible to go to sleep at night because that worked better than than any sleeping pill. Read the Bible. Get over there in Chronicles, so-and-so begets so-and-so. You are gone in no time. I've awakened myself many times with the weight of the Bible falling on my chest. Now, I dare not do that. If I read the Bible before I go to bed, I'm up for hours. Literally. I've had to discipline myself. Do not read the Bible before you go to sleep. Because if I get to reading, woo, ha, ha, oh, Then I got to sit up in bed. Oh, my God. And then I got to get my notepad out and start making some notes. And and before you know it, it's 3 o'clock in the morning because this word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. This book is amazing. It's amazing. Then you come to the altar of incense, which has to do with our worship and, and our intercession and our prayer. The fire from this altar was required to come from the brazen altar at the door of the tabernacle, the one that was out there in the outer court where they offered the sacrifices. You know why? Because the fat and the blood of the animals dripped upon the coals burning there. And what God told Moses, you've got to take the fire from that altar, bring it in here, put it in the altar of incense, and then put some incense on it. Why? Because those coals represented sacrifice. God wants your sacrifice, but he doesn't want it to smell like sacrifice. He wants it to smell like worship. Amen. I'm preaching to you some stuff I've preached all over the world to ministries and and conferences. This is what I do. Never taught it at this level here at CT. But if you'll hear me, I'm going to revolutionize your life, your walk with God. 
amen, the two sons of Aaron went and offered strange fire. Do you know where that came from? It meant that they did not go to the altar at the entrance of the tabernacle and get the coals from there. They brought different fire and put it on the altar of incense to burn incense. And fire came out from God and consumed them. Because God doesn't want some worship that doesn't have sacrifice in it. Oh, I'm going to talk to you right now. Uh, I wish I could spend some time on this. David said, I will offer the sacrifice of praise. Sometimes you don't feel like praising him. Sometimes you don't feel like serving God. In fact, I've found out when you need to the most is when you feel like it the least. Sometimes you don't want to be in church. Let a few reversals come your way and you don't want to be there. The devil starts talking to you. Man, you can't even focus on God right now. Why are you going to church after what you just went through? You know you can just go there and won't hear a thing the pastor says. You're not going to be able to even worship. You're going to be sitting there looking at your watch, wondering when the service is going to end. And, and you're not getting anything. Just stay home. Watch the game. You know why he doesn't want you to offer the sacrifice of praise? Because if you discipline your mind and you focus on God, and you touch that altar right there. There's something about our praise he loves. God can be moved by praise when he's not moved by anything else. You remember the story of Jehoshaphat. In the book of Chronicles, the enemy had come and stretched out before them, the little tribe of Judah, and the enemy stretched out all the way into the distant horizon there, all across, and then into the distant horizon there. You couldn't see either end. And there was little Israel, and in the poetic language of the Bible, the Bible says they were like a little flock of sheep, defenseless in other words. And Jehoshaphat the king didn't know what to do, and he went to God, and this is what the Lord said, send out the Levites to praise first. Don't send out your archers. Don't send out your, 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 the ones carrying spears and battle axes. Don't send out your warriors. Sometimes you got to learn the art of fighting without fighting. And that's what worship is. And he sent out the worshipers, and it confused the enemy because those on that side couldn't see the end over here, and those on this end couldn't see the end over there. And they heard Israel rejoicing, blowing their trumpets and celebrating, and everybody all the way at the end said, my God, we lost a battle. We didn't even know it had started yet. And they started trying to get away, killing each other as they fled. Israel never had to fire a shot. I've got a word for some in this house. There's somebody that's going through something. Listen to me. I don't know if it's with your kids, your marriage. I don't know if it's in your body, but if you can worship, God's going to confuse the enemy. You're coming out of it. Hallelujah to the lamb. And quite frankly, I don't even want to wait until I need it. I like to keep the old boy confused all the time anyway. Man, I didn't even know I was fighting him today, but he's rejoicing. I must really be in trouble, amen. Just rejoice in all things. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. If you can touch an anointed altar of worship, God will cause a release of his holiness to come. 
God will release something in your life. And then you came to the altar, to the, to the veil. Amen. And rabbis say that even though the altar of incense was outside the veil, the veil's the blue thing you see behind. They say that, that though it was outside, its function was inside. <laughs> because no light could penetrate through that veil. Josephus was a Jewish historian that lived during the time that Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. He was a priest. And when Titus, the Roman general, came and attacked Jerusalem, you know what Josephus did? He capitulated, went to the side of the Romans. And he writes about all of these things that have to do with the tabernacle, the temple, and gives us insight from the priestly perspective as to what all of that meant. And Josephus tells us the veil was so thick that no natural light could penetrate behind it. Uh huh. And he said that you could not tear it if you tried. He said, in fact, if you put a team of horses on either side and tried to rip the veil, you couldn't. When the priest would go in once a year carrying the, the blood, it took two priests to go in with him and pull the veil back enough for him to slide through. The veil was that heavy. And yet when Christ died, you know what happened? The veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top like we would tear it, but from the top to the bottom because it was God that tore it in two. God was saying, I want out of this confined area. I want man to have access to me. And when Jesus died, he made a way into the most, the holiest of holies. And so you went behind the veil and there was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And there were actually two different items. Most people don't realize it. We think it was one item. There was the box and its lid. We would call that one item. If you have a box with a lid on it, we would think of that as being one piece of furniture, not God. It was considered by God to be two separate pieces of furniture. The box, the Ark of the Covenant, contained three things that I'll close with in just a moment. The top was the mercy seat. On the top were the cherubims with their wings outstretched one to another. Between the wings of the cherubims, there dwelt the Shekinah the Shekinah presence of God, a visible blue flame of fire. It hovered suspended in midair. It had no earthly source. Amen. Oh, because it was, the, it was the power and presence of an eternal God who doesn't depend upon anything I or you give him to exist. God is there whether we say he is or not. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's what the Bible says. And when the priest would go in and pour the oil upon, I mean, not the oil, but the, the blood upon the mercy seat, Josephus says not once in all of Israel's history did the blood ever make it all the way to the mercy seat and hit the top. It was consumed by the fire while it was still in midair. Important. He said God was so rich in mercy that the blood was never actually allowed to hit the top of the mercy seat. In fact, God is so rich in mercy, that's why those two cherubims are there. God only put one cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to protect it after man fell. He put two over the mercy seat. Why? Because he is so rich in mercy, you can take advantage of God's mercy. Amen. 
you can abuse his mercy. We've been raised to believe that God is harsh and judgmental. And yes, someday he will be a judge. But I need you to know that right now, God is looking to save. God wants to forgive. God is the one that came from behind the veil on the way out. That's why he had the anointing begin behind the veil and work its way out. It was God coming to us. What am I saying? You may have been raised to believe that God is harsh and wants to get even with you. That's not the God that we serve. The God we serve is so rich in mercy. Angels have to protect his mercy lest somebody unworthy take advantage of it. There's mercy more than enough and plenty left over to spare. I'm talking to you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're at. No matter what your life has has been like, you can come to the mercy seat. Come to the altar. Come and find mercy. You don't know what I've been doing, Pastor. Come and find mercy. There's mercy in abundance in the house of God. You don't know how many times I've messed up. Come, there's mercy. You don't know how many times I've done wrong things. Come, there's mercy. Am I talking to anybody right now? Hallelujah. I think I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, I just, just recently, just recently wrote a letter for a member of our church that's one of the sweetest men you'd ever want to know and been a Christian for years. But he did time for killing two people. You'd never know who he was. And I wrote a letter to the, to the board of pardons asking them to expunge his record. I'm praying that he gets completely released so he can travel with his family and get a passport because he's one of the sweetest guys you'd ever want to know. You say, how could God forgive somebody that took two lives? He's rich in mercy. That's why. And if he did that for you, let me tell you what else. I did that for him. He'll do it for you. Amen. Doesn't matter what you've done. One of the things the enemy beats us up with the most is he tells us we're not worthy. No, we're not. It's not about are you worthy. It's about his mercy. That's what counts. Somebody shout amen right now. And then God said to to Moses, I want you to anoint Aaron and his sons. And um, we're going to get back to the three things in the ark and I'll close. But Aaron and his sons were brought before the whole nation at the door of the house of God. And in the sight of the nation, they were humiliated. They were stripped of their clothes, made to all of their clothing taken away, made to be naked before the nation. And then they went through the process of cleansing. They were washed with water. And then they went through the process of the application of blood and the anointing. Why did God have them strip in front of the nation? It was because God requires transparency. The closer you get to him, you can't hide your stuff. Hello, somebody. And I want you to know that's especially true in ministry. Amen. Amen. I'll tell you a little something you don't know, and I'm not saying this to make you feel like I'm all that, because there have been all kind of scandals with people in ministry, and I know folks in their tithe to television ministries that, that, that use it for crazy stuff. 
I'm serious, and I wonder, do they, do they know what they're doing? But let me tell you what I did. I wanted to be pure before God. And do you know that in the 28 years that I've been here, I, 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 preach, I preach hundreds of conferences. Every week I'm going somewhere. Somebody gives me an offering. You know what I do? I, I first of all, either don't take it, or if I take it, I say, put the name Christian Tabernacle on it because I don't receive a penny of it. I live entirely on the offering given by this church. And I want you to know that as we get ready to go into this building. All of these other things I do, I don't get paid for. I put it into missions right here. You say, why are you telling us that? Because there's always somebody out there trying to say they're getting rich and this is going on. And, and maybe some places they are, but I take this much too serious. I'm not going to live my life like that. I found a treasure that's better than anything you could ever give me anyway. Amen. Did you hear me? I drive a car I don't even own. It's owned by the church. It's got almost 200,000 miles on it, and it's eight years old. And you hear folks, oh, that pastor, this, that. Let me just say this. I need to live as a man of God if I'm going to be used by God. I've got to be transparent in the eyes of this congregation. You say, why do you tell us all this stuff about the building? Because I don't want somebody going off in line and, and you to become contaminated. You need an anointed covering. You need to be able to receive a word from God. Amen. 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 I've instructed Brenda that if she finds a quarter on the floor, you ask her, a quarter on the floor. You pick it up, put it in an envelope, and put it in the offering. We don't pick up anything here because we have to be stripped to be transparent, and only then can we be anointed. If you've got stuff hidden in your life, God can anoint you. Oh, God. Amen. And then you know what they did? They took the blood. They killed two animals. One they sacrificed as a sin offering because I'm going to tell you right away, I'm not perfect and the priests were not either. I don't want to be put on that pedestal. I don't want somebody putting me up there. Oh, this pastor. I see guys that they want to act like they're, they're far above normal living and the problems of life. And all of the while, you ask them, how are you doing? Oh, praise the Lord. And they're going under the whole time. Amen. Uh, not like that. I'm going to tell you I'm as real as anybody in this building. I need God as much as you need God. Can I preach that way? Is it all right if I just tell you that? Amen. And they took the other animal and they sacrificed it and they put the blood on the, the lobe of the right ear, thumb of the right hand, big toe of the right foot. And then they took the pieces and put the animal into Moses, or rather into Aaron and his son's hands. And they had to wave them before the Lord because the priest has to feel the weight of sacrifice. If you're going to be used of God, you've got to feel the weight of sacrifice. This is not about putting you in the limelight or me in the limelight. God can't use you if there's no sacrifice. And they put the weight of those bloody animals in Aaron's hands and his sons, and they waved them before the Lord. And when the bride dried blood on their ear, their thumb, and their toe had finished completely drying, they took the oil, and they went back, and they smeared the oil over the blood, smeared it over the thumb, smeared it over the toe, and then sprinkled them with oil seven times. Why? Because they had been sprinkled with blood seven times. And then he took the horn of oil and he poured it over Aaron's head. And God had told Moses, go anoint Aaron and his sons, but you will not find where Aaron's sons were anointed in scripture, only Aaron. 
And this is the way it worked. They put, he held his head back up and looked into heaven. And they poured the oil over his hair. It ran down into his beard. And God said, do not anoint his flesh. I don't want flesh to be anointed. Ooh, that's heavy stuff right there. And it ran down his beard, Psalms 133, into the skirts of his garments. And I'm talking to you right now. Listen to me because this is a powerful hallelujah to the Lamb. You know where his sons got anointed? When they would run to embrace their daddy because the, the garments soaked up the oil. You cannot be anointed in ministry and not be connected in relationship. Oh, somebody help me out. I know people that want to go, they want to do this, they want to do great things, but they break one relationship after another. You only get anointed in the embrace of somebody else that's anointed. Hello, somebody. Because the anointing oil in Aaron's robes soaked into their robes. And then later when Aaron was ready to die, they took his robes off and put them on his oldest son, Eleazar. And I'm finished. And you know what happened? He not only was now carrying his daddy's anointing, but Moses came with another horn of oil and poured it over his head. And now Eliezer had his daddy's anointing plus another anointing. He was twice as anointed as his daddy was. Let me tell you why we got to keep our young people close. Let me tell you why we've got to not lose them. Because they're the next generation and they're anointed in our embrace. Hello, somebody. I want Andrew and Tyler and Robert and I want Victor and all these others and Kayla and Charles and these others in our youth ministry and young adult ministry to be more anointed than we are. Hello. The next generation of Christian Tabernacle is going to be powerful. Why? Because this is an anointed covering. Amen. Amen. Why the right ear? Because your ear has to be cleansed before it can be anointed. Why the blood on the thumb? Because there's a lot of people serving God whose motives are not pure. Why the toe of the big foot? Because there's a lot of people that talk the talk but don't walk the walk. Hello, somebody. And the oil cannot go where the blood has not yet been. Mm. Anoint my family, Lord. Yeah, you got to get your family under the blood first. Lord, anoint my finances. Have you got them under the blood yet? Amen. You're wanting God to anoint your finances, but there's no blood on your finances. You're not even faithful in your giving. Some of you watch people that come here whose lives have exploded, and I've known folk to get jealous, literally get jealous. Amen. Crazy stuff being said sometimes. Crazy stuff. I know one man who came down, my son-in-law, I'm even going to tell you who it is. You see him drive a Ferrari. You see him drive a Rolls Royce. He didn't get none of that from this church. You know what happened? He was $70,000 in credit card debt, and he had $200 in his pocket and walked up here after I preached one Sunday morning, and this is what he said. God, this is nothing against $70,000 credit card debt. I'm laying it on the altar. I need you to take care of it. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. I didn't even know they were in debt. They were hiding it from me. Hiding it from me. I'm the daddy. He wanted me to look up to him and respect him and, and believe I, he was taking good care of my daughter. And you know, I got mad at him after I found out the shape they were in. 
said, you should have come talk to me. As long as i got a loaf of bread, you can have half of it, you know. He, he poured, gave his money to, the, to, to God, and while I'm on this side of the platform, he's doing that, and I don't know it. And the Spirit of the Lord came on me, and I said, there's somebody in this building that's 30 days away from a breakthrough, and God's going to open heaven over your life. Within 30 days, they had launched their business, and it had exploded, literally exploded overnight, went through the ceiling, and some folk in this building are all upset about why my finances don't get blessed. Maybe you haven't got them under the blood yet. I'm not saying that's the only reason. It may not be your season if you've been faithful, but make sure you're faithful so when your season rolls around, hello, somebody. Amen. He and his partner have been blessed. And you know what? Then, then I close with this. I close with this because back to that Ark of the Covenant. Within that thing were three different items. There was the tables of stone. Remember, Moses went into the mountain and God carved tables of stone. With his finger, God did it. And then wrote upon them the Ten Commandments, the principles of the kingdom. And then there was also Aaron's rod that budded, his walking stick, because Korah rose up in a dispute. Korah was also of the priestly lineage, and he came to Moses and Aaron and said, you guys, you're, you, you've taken too much authority here. We're, we're priests just like you. We've got a right to do everything you're doing and more. And so God said, take their walking sticks, their walking staffs, and take Aaron's and put them inside the house of God, the tabernacle, and leave them there overnight in the, holy, the most holy place, holiest of all, where the Shekinah was at, the Shekinah power of God. And Aaron's was made of an almond branch that he had carried with him in that desert for all those years. It was, drawn, it was, it, it was dried out. It was worn. It probably had been soaked with his pers the perspiration of his hand. It was nothing but a dead stick. If there's anybody here from California, you know it takes nine months for almond trees to bud, grow leaves, flowers, and produce full-grown almonds. When Moses went back the next morning, all of Korah's bunch, their walking sticks were still dead. But Aaron's had blossomed, grown leaves and buds and flowers and full-grown almonds overnight. God condensed the nine-month growing season into one night. And there was also the pot of manna. Watch this now. And here's what happened. The Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from the mountain, he saw Israel worshiping the golden calf, got mad and threw the Ten Commandments down and broke them. And he went back to be with God. And God said, this time you've got to carve them yourself. And before God carved the Ten Commandments out of stone, now Moses had to carve the tables of stone and give those to God and God with his fingertip then wrote upon them the law. There's a principle. When you break the principles of God, the laws of God in your life, it gets harder and harder to put them back in place. It requires effort on your part. Hello, somebody. And you keep doing things that shouldn't be doing. You don't come to church when you're supposed to and you know you should. It gets harder for you to make the commitment for God to write that law on your heart. 
Hello, somebody. But if you can live your life guided by the principles of God's word, then you will get Aaron's rod, which means that you will have divine authority and what took a year can be done in one night. Amen. God will shorten the season and what you would have to wait a lifetime for can literally be done in a short matter of time. I want you to hear what I'm saying right now. Yes, your ship is coming in. You may have to wait 20 years, but I want to tell you how to get around that. You get God's principles in your life. That gives you God's authority. And what does that do? It gives you manna, which is the supernatural provision of God Almighty. God will give you supernatural provision. God will open heaven over you. Stand with me and come and pray. I've got to close right now.